Greetings, listeners of the Latin Prayer Podcast. My name is Dylan Drago, and welcome back for another episode. Happy second week of Advent. In my last episode, I did mention that we were going to go through the Advent wreath blessing, and I wanted to include in that the history of the Advent wreath, in case you didn't know, but I just ran out of time to do it on that episode, so I figured today we could go through that. Now, before we dive into that, I would also like to just follow the same format of last week's episode where we take a look at the second Sunday of Advent gospel reading and maybe take a couple of passages and visit the Catena Orea and see what some of the saints have to say about that particular passage. So let's begin. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. This is a continuation of the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Gloria tibi Domine. At that time, when John had heard in prison of the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples to say to him, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answering said to them, Go and report to John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead rise. The poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not scandalized in me. Then, as they went away, Jesus began to say to the crowds concerning John, What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Behold, those who wear soft garments are in the houses of kings. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who shall make ready your way before you. Laus tibi Christe. In nomine Patris, Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Now I don't know about you, but this has always been a very perplexing gospel for me. I mean, if you think about it, it almost seems as if St. John, having been put in prison and about to be put to death, is having, I don't know, doubts about who our Lord really is. It certainly seems that way when we look at the text the way that it is written. However, this is not how the church in her infinite wisdom, how the saints in their infinite wisdom, understood this text. And so I'm going to jump over to the Catena Aurea and we're going to do a little bit of digging on a couple of these passages to see if we can flesh out their meaning. So I want to look what St. Gregory had to say about this first. And I quote, We must inquire how John, who is a prophet and more than a prophet, who made known the Lord when he came to be baptized, saying, Behold the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sins of the world. Why, when he was afterwards cast into prison, he should send his disciples to ask, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Did he not know him who he pointed out to others, or was he uncertain whether this was he, by whom he was foretelling, by baptizing, and by making known he had proclaimed to be he? St. Gregory goes on to answer, But this question may be answered in a better way if we attend to the order of time. At the waters of the Jordan, he had affirmed that this was the Redeemer of the world. 
after he was thrown into prison, he inquires if this was he that should come. Not that he doubted that this was the Redeemer of the world, but he asks that he may know whether he, who in his own person had come into the world, would in his own person descend also to the world below. End quote. Now, this is further ratified by St. Jerome, and I love this. I love what he says about this. Quote, Hence, he frames his question thus, Art thou he that is to come, not art thou he that hast come? And in a sense is, Direct me, since I am about to go down into the lower parts of the earth, whether I shall announce thee to the spirits beneath also, or whether thou, as the Son of God, may not taste death, but will send another to this sacrament. St. John the Baptist, right here, is doing the exact opposite of what I thought he was doing. I thought he had reached the end of his life, and he had fallen short. Right at the last moment, he kind of gave up and lost his faith, when instead he is revealing how deep and how strong his faith really is in who Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is. He understands it perfectly. You see, he knows he's about to die. He knows he's about to descend into the belly of the earth. And he's asking permission of our Lord. I mean, think about this. He's already prepared the way of our Lord Jesus Christ at the Jordan. But now he's about to go to those who have died. And he's asking permission. Can I continue my work? Can I go down and can I proclaim to them that your approach is near? Now, I'm not making this up. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas actually summarizes both what St. Jerome and what St. Gregory says in the Catena, and I'm going to read his summary to you right now. Quote, But it ought to be observed that Jerome and Gregory did not say that John was to proclaim Christ's coming to the world beneath to the end that the unbelievers there might be converted to the faith, but that the righteous who abode in expectation of Christ, should be comforted by his near approach. End quote. I mean, you can't argue with it. This is, this is amazing. This is completely amazing. Because when you then look at the rest of the text and what our Lord says about St. John the Baptist, he confirms it. He confirms it. See, everybody that was standing there that saw the two disciples of St. John the Baptist come and approach our Lord and ask, are you the Christ or should we wait for another? What basically the rest of the people there would have understood is the same thing that I originally understood, which is, wait a minute, John's doubting, John's in prison, because they're only thinking of this temporal world. And Christ corrects all of them. He doesn't say to the disciples, oh, you of little faith, or to St. John the Baptist, oh, you of little faith. Remember, it's in our Lord's nature to do this. He's done it many other times throughout the scriptures to his own apostles, but he doesn't say that about St. John. He praises him, and then he turns to the people, and he corrects their understanding, and he asks them some very specific questions. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
this weakling, this person who would throw away his belief just because he's about to die? Did you go out to see this weakling? No. Did you go out to see someone that was clothed in fine garments? No. People who are clothed in fine garments are in the houses of kings, but St. John the Baptist right now is in prison, about to die. What did you go out there to see? You went out there to see a prophet. And then he adds, and I tell you more than a prophet. See, why would he be praising St. John the Baptist if St. John the Baptist is losing his faith? St. John the Baptist is not losing his faith. He is confirming that he believes Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. And since he's about to die, he wants to know, are you going to come down? Can I prepare the way down there? Or are you going to do it some other way? Am I that messenger, or are you going to give that job to somebody else? He's almost questioning whether he's even worthy himself to continue his mission when he dies. That is how amazing this man is. And Jesus confirms it. And the last line of the gospel says it. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who shall make ready your way before you. And so he is basically confirming St. John the Baptist and saying, no, you did it here in the temporal realm. You're going to go down and you're going to do it there too. You are going to prepare the way of the Lord. I find it fascinating and also kind of sad because it is an act of pride for you and I today in this day and age to read any passage of scripture and think that somehow we are so privileged, we are so gifted, that we could understand it the same way that the church fathers understood Scripture. Because you have to understand, some of these great men who wrote, a, who wrote these commentaries didn't you know, just pull this out of their head, make it up or anything. They actually, some of them had conversations with the apostles themselves. They were alive, and they knew each other. And so, when the scriptures were being passed around and there were things that needed clarification, the disciples or the followers of the apostles would clarify these things and then put it into writing for the faithful. And then you have someone like St. Thomas Aquinas who goes, well, it'd be nice if we had all the commentaries in one place. And then he just says, well, let's just do it. <laughs> he, he puts this whole thing together and he gives it to us in such a fashion. I mean, I've proven that I, I'm just not intelligent enough on my own or holy enough, or maybe some combination of both of those things, to understand the scriptures the way that the church in her 2,000 years of church history has seen it traditionally. And that is what we need to conform our understanding to, not to make it up on our own. Sure, is, is it possible that we could come to some, you know, truth on our own? Absolutely, it's possible. But I think the better thing to do would be to look at the truth that has already been revealed, that has been passed down from generation to generation, and to take our minds and to conform our minds and our understanding to that truth. And here is a prime example. There is a reason why in the traditional Latin Mass, in the Confidior, St. John the Baptist is included in that. You know, it goes, Confitior Deo Omnipotente, Beato Maria Semper Virgini, Beato Michele Arcangelo, Beato Giovanni Baptiste. Sanctus Apostolos Petro et Paolo, Omnibus Sanctus et Te Pater. So you have, first, I confess to Almighty God the Father, I confess 
to the Blessed Mary of a Virgin, then to St. Michael the Archangel, and then the next person mentioned is St. John the Baptist. There's a reason why. There's no way that the Church would raise such a man or Christ would confirm such a man if he had lost his faith just at the 11th hour, at the last moment. This man did not lose his faith. No, St. John the Baptist proved how great and how deep his faith was and how humble he was to not assume that he would be able to continue his mission after he died. He asked permission. He saw himself as nothing before God. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. I am unworthy to untie his sandal. This is who this man is. And this is why the Church, in her wisdom, includes him in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. In the traditional Latin Mass, you will hear his name every single time he is invoked. Now I want to wrap up this reflection on this past Sunday's Gospel. There's a few reasons why he sent his disciples. Obviously, St. John the Baptist couldn't go himself because he was in prison, and he wanted to get permission that he was able to continue his mission. The second reason was because his disciples needed to understand that this was not the end. This was a new beginning. He was worried for them. He wanted them to know that they needed to follow Christ and not follow him. St. John Chrysostom in the Catena, in this particular verse, confirms this. He says, quote, Yet whilst John was with them, he held rightly convinced concerning Christ. But when he was going to die, he was more concerned on their behalf, for he feared that he might leave his disciples a prey to some pernicious doctrine that they should remain separate from Christ, to whom it had been his care to bring all of his followers from the beginning. He had said to them, Depart from me, for he, meaning Christ, is better than me. He would not have prevailed with them as they would have supposed that he spoke in his humility, which opinion would have drawn them more closely to him. What then does he? He waits to hear through them that Christ works miracles, and nor did he send all but only two, whom perhaps he chose a more ready to believe than the rest, the reason of his inquiry might be unsuspected, and that from, the th from things themselves which they should see, they might understand the differences between him and Jesus. End quote. So if I were to just paraphrase this, if I, and if I understand what St. Chrysostom is saying here, is that he only sent two disciples, and he wanted those two disciples who were more ready to believe to come back and to explain to the remainder of the disciples of St. John the Baptist that the dead are being raised, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, the blind can see again. He wanted them to, to know that there is a big difference between St. John the Baptist and the Son of God. And that this man really must be the Son of God, because look at what is happening. St. John sends his disciples to Christ so that they can hear Christ himself. And I think that's a good place to segue into the rest of this episode, which is the history of the Advent wreath and its blessing. So why don't we start with what the word Advent actually even means. So Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus. Think of the word adventure. And Advent means coming, or Adventus means coming. And it's actually a translation of the Greek word parousia. Most people know Advent today as a time of anticipation and expectation for the birth of Christ. However, Advent began as early as the 4th and 5th centuries as a time of fasting and prayer for Christians. The first mention of Advent occurred in the 300s AD at a meeting of church leaders 
called the Council of Saragossa. It gradually developed into a season that stretched across the month of December, and Advent lasts for four Sundays leading up to Christmas, which we all know, right? So it not only symbolizes the waiting for Christ's birth so that we can celebrate that feast day, but also for his final return. Now, I want to insert here that when you look at the traditional manuals for children explaining Advent, they actually talk about our Lord's coming not just at Christmas and just at the end of time, but they also talk about his coming into your soul at baptism. In fact, our uh, parish priest this Sunday in his homily explained that that is another big, great event. Yesterday, we celebrated the baptism anniversary of my daughter, Gemma, and so she's this is her third anniversary baptism, and the priest that baptized her is an amazing man, Father Obalo. He sent me a message, and he said, I will offer my Mass for her today, and happy third anniversary. So, Father Obalo, if you're listening, God love you. Thank you. But this, again, just goes to remind me, we cannot minimize or diminish the gravity of the entire Trinity coming into the soul of an individual, bringing that soul back to life, raising it from the dead, so to speak, right? From a pagan life, uh, the life of original sin, to the life of grace. And then if we continue as we are supposed to in the reception of the sacraments and the growing in our understanding of the faith, eventually to have Christ come to us every single time we receive him in the most holy Eucharist. So this reception of Christ in the Eucharist and him coming into the soul of a child at baptism or an adult, this is an, another special advent, so to speak. This We have to remember and prepare for these special days. We should be celebrating our anniversaries of our baptism, I would say, you know, just as much, if not maybe more, than we would celebrate our birthday. And so we have to remember that when we look at Advent, it's all of these three or four things. Him coming as the Christ child, him coming into the soul of a child at their baptism, him coming to us in Holy Communion, and then his final coming. We can look forward to all of these things. Now, if we stop and reflect on the Advent wreath itself, you ever wonder why we use evergreens as the wreath? Why do we go and collect these things that are still green in the middle of winter? Well, winter has this symbolism of death. Spring has the symbolism of new life, but winter we associate with death. And yet we have new life in winter. So evergreens are present. They symbolize everlasting life in the midst of death, as the evergreen is continuously green. Now, there's several kinds of evergreens, right? Laurel signifies victory over persecution and suffering. Pine and holly and yew signify immortality and cedar. When you think of cedar, you think of strength and you think of healing. Even holly has a special symbolism about it. What do the prickly leaves remind you of? It should remind you of the crown of thorns and the little red berries, the blood that Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. There's an old English legend, I might have to look it up, but it, it tells how the cross was actually made of holly. The circle of the wreath, which has no beginning or end, 
symbolizes the eternity of God and the immortality of the soul and everlasting life that is found in Christ. And pine cones or nuts or other things like that that we use to decorate the wreath symbolize life and resurrection because from a seed that goes down into the earth to die, new life bursts forth from that. So everything in the wreath, from the evergreens to the the berries to the seeds, they all point towards the immortality of our soul and this everlasting life that Jesus Christ, our Lord, promised to us. And then finally, we have the candles themselves. And so when we look at the candles, what does it bring to the forefront of our mind? Well, if I think about just that flickering flame, it the flame itself should remind you of who Jesus Christ is. And St. John tells us in his gospel, John 1 verses 4 through 5 say, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. St. John also tells us in his gospel, chapter 3 verses 19 and 21, that our Lord Jesus Christ is the light that came into the world. He came to dispel the darkness of sin and death and to radiate the truth and the love of God. All of these little mini things that are part of the wreath, right? This great crown of heaven, this circle of God's unending love, this eternal life, this light that shines in the darkness, this evergreen, this everlasting life in the midst of winter and death. This is why it's so important. This is another way that we can prepare ourselves and remind ourselves that this world is not our home, that our home is eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. So finally, let's dive into the candles. Now, there is a tradition that each week of Advent represents 1,000 years to add to 4,000 years from Adam and Eve until the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, three of those candles are purple, and one is rose color. The purple candles we've already talked about. Purple symbolizes this penitential season of fasting and prayer and penance and sacrifice, and we take on good works during this time. Why do we light a rose candle on the third Sunday? Now, the third Sunday is called Gaudete Sunday. You'll notice your parish priest wearing rose color vestments, And it just means that we've arrived at the midpoint of Advent, where our preparation and our prayer and our fasting is about halfway through, and we are that much closer to the coming of our Lord at Christmas. Now, the first candle, which is lit, symbolizes hope. It's sometimes called the prophecy candle, and it's in remembrance of the prophets of old, particularly Isaiah, who foretold the birth of Christ, right? We heard part of that prophecy in the gospel this Sunday. It represents this great anticipation or expectation that is felt of the coming Messiah. The second candle, also purple, represents faith, and it's sometimes called the Bethlehem candle as a reminder of Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem. The third candle, being that we are now, you know, past that halfway point, is rose, and it symbolizes joy. It's called the shepherd's candle. Think about the joy that filled the shepherd's souls when they saw the angels above them, right? When they would experience the birth of Jesus 
and also the joy that the faithful have reached because we are that much closer. We're, we're over the hump. We're, we, you know, we're, we're closing in on Christmas. And of course, when we light the final purple candle, it marks that last week of prayer and penance as we wait for the birth of our Savior. And that final candle is sometimes called the angel's candle. It symbolizes peace. It reminds us that of the message the angels gave to the shepherds, which was peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Now, in our home, on Christmas Eve, we place a white candle in the middle of the wreath. This is called the Christ candle because it represents the life of Christ himself. The color is white, obviously, for purity and because Christ is sinless and he is our Savior. But I have seen some people do something a little bit different where they will not only place a white candle in the center, but they will replace the purple and rose color candles with white candles as well. And I don't know if those white candles have a special significance, but it's just a change that we've moved completely from this penitential season to this Christmas tide, this Christmas season. Now, the blessing of the Advent wreath that our family uses, I put the link in the show notes on the last episode. I will include it in this one as well. It's from a website called joyfilledfamily.com, and I've taken you to the link right to that page. You'll have to scroll down, and it says click here for your Advent wreath printable. And when you click it, it looks like you have to pay for it, but it's by donation. And if you are in a position where you can't offer them anything, that's fine. You'll still be able to get the PDF. Um, you'll be able to download it. You can just put $0 in there and you can you can download the PDF and print it off. So I'm going to go through that with you today. So this is a really nice little booklet that they put together. The front of it says, Advent, a time of preparation for the coming of the Christ child, Veni, Veni, Emmanuel. And it goes through different parts. It starts on the first Sunday of Advent. The family gathers for the blessing of the Advent wreath by the Father who begins. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And everyone responds with, Who hast made heaven and earth? And then the Father says, Let us pray. O God, by whose word all things are sanctified, pour forth thy blessing upon this wreath, and grant that we who use it may prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ and may receive from thee abundant graces through Christ our Lord. Amen. Usually you will do this just at the meal because then there's a section there for grace before meals. And the mother says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Should make you think of St. John the Baptist. And everyone says in response, make straight his paths. And they go on to say, bless us, O Lord, in these thy gifts, which we're about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. Or if you were to do it in Latin, Benedict Domine nos et ecto adono, quede tu ar lagitate sumusum turi, per Christum Dominum nostrum. Amen. And then the Father responds with, Drop down dew, ye heavens above, and let the clouds reign the just one. And then everyone responds with, Let the earth be opened and bud forth a savior. Oh, beautiful imagery. Now, we can go on to the first week, second week, third week, and fourth week of Advent, there's a prayer for each one of the candles. So the first candle, purple, is lighted, and the prayer for the first week is said. Exert, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy power, and come, that by thy protection we may be freed from the imminent dangers of our sins, and be saved by thy mercy, who livest and reignest, God, world without end. Amen. And at the end of this prayer, there is a prayer for the Mother of God, in honor of the Mother of God. I'll do that at the end. I just want to go through all four weeks. So the second week, the prayer is, 
Stir up, O Lord, our hearts, to prepare the ways of thy only begotten Son, that by his coming we may be enabled to serve thee with pure minds, who livest and reignest God world without end. Amen. On the third week, we say the prayer. Bend thine ear, O Lord, we beseech thee, to our prayers, and enlighten the darkness of our minds by the grace of thy visitation, who livest and reignest God world without end. And then the fourth week, we light the final candle. Exert, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy power, and come, and succor us, that by thy great might, that by the assistance of thy grace, thy indulgent mercy may hasten what is delayed by our sins, who livest and reignest God, world without end. Amen. So usually, after every one of those prayers, there is a prayer in honor of the Mother of God. And so, either my wife or one of my children who can read, will say this prayer. And so it goes. Let us pray. O God, who wast pleased that thy word, when the angel delivered his message, should take flesh in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, give ear to our humble petitions, and grant that we who believe her to be truly the Mother of God may be helped by her prayers through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Which is beautiful because every one of those prayers over the candles ends with a prayer in honor of the Mother of God, who, if you think about this, all of this is possible. Everything that we're celebrating here happens because of her fiat, her yes. She brings Christ to us and brings us to Christ. That is her purpose. She very rarely says anything, but when she shows up, and she is there with us. Christ is there also. Now, there is one last prayer in this little booklet on the back, which says, Prayer in Advent. And this is a fantastic prayer to just pray every day. And it goes like this. O God, who by thy gracious Advent has brought joy into this world, grant us, we beseech thee, thy grace to prepare ourselves by sincere penance for its celebration and for the last judgment. Amen. So if you check out Joy-Filled Family, the link is in the show notes below. You can get this little booklet and you can continue to pray these beautiful prayers with your family. I like how this last prayer ended with the words, last judgment. For during the season of Advent, we should be meditating on those four things, right? Our death, our personal judgment, and of course, the terrors of hell and the beauty of heaven. We should be reflecting on these last four things, especially as we move through this season to prepare our hearts and minds for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In our next episode, we'll be looking at the O Antiphons. We'll be looking at their history, what they are, and how to make this part of the life of your family during this Advent season. A big thank you to all of you who are praying the rosary and listening daily. I will put the links for the Daily Rosary again in the show notes, so please share this podcast with your family and friends, and remember what Pope St. Pius X said, if there were one million families praying the rosary every day, the entire world would be saved. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. It's the easiest free way for you to support the podcast, and of course, if you are in a financial position to support this podcast and would like to do so, please visit us on Patreon. 
patreon.com forward slash the Latin Prayer Podcast. I've put up a goal there and I'm going to be making some changes to the Patreon page, upgrading and updating the tiers and things that I'd like to give to our Patreon members. My wife and I have been sitting down, as we always do in the season of Advent, and look at different areas of our life and make some goals and changes that we want to make. And she's been helping me with this to, to be able to move forward. And of course, I've also mentioned on a previous episode, I'm going to be doing merchandise. I'm about, I'd say about 75% of the way, and I, my goal is still to have the merchandise up and running by the middle of December, about December 15th. And so just stay tuned for that. I'm excited for it. I think you guys are going to really like it. I want to thank all of our patrons, without whom I would not be able to bring you these episodes every week. We have right now 15 wonderful people who are supporting this podcast, and my goal is to grow that. I've set that goal on our Patreon page because eventually I'd like to move from just doing audio only to video as well and being able to put these episodes up for you on video so I could show you things in addition to just the audio and you'd have the option of doing both however to be able to do it in video it requires more time and of course more money and if i'm in a better financial position to be able to do that then of course i'm going to do it that's the goal and so please check us out on patreon if you're in a position to support the podcast financially and as a big thank you to all of our patrons i want to pray for them their family members and their intentions especially during this season of advent so let us begin. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater noster, qui es in celi sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cello et in terra, panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, et dimite nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et nenos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos a malo. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, Benedicta tu in mulieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Iesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostrae. Amen. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto, sicut arate principio et nunc et semper et in secula seculorum. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you again for joining me for another episode, and until our next episode... May God love you and Our Lady keep you close to her immaculate heart, and may she lead you into the abode of the sacred heart of her Son, our Lord Jesus Christ.